0: Please, would you keep that passage open uh, from Ephesians chapter 1, that Stephen's just read to us. It's page 1173. As Tim said earlier, we're starting a series on Ephesians on Sundays across all our services and our connect groups are going to be looking at Ephesians as well. There's material for group leaders. And by the way, I'm going to run a repeat of the training session for leaders and anybody else who wants to come at the end of this service. So uh, 11 o'clock to 12:30 training session on Ephesians. So that's uh, that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. And uh, if you miss a session or think I can't believe he said that, uh, then the podcast is the place to go, and you can check <laughs> and then come and see me. Let's pray. Father, you've spoken to us and you continue to speak to us through your word. And we ask now, Father, that you will so move our hearts and our minds that we're res- responsive to what you're saying to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians, we're people of hope, aren't we? We have hope for this world. I hope that's capable of inspiring us, a hope that's capable of motivating us, a hope that keeps us going as we look around at our circumstances, look at the circumstances of our family and our friends as we see what's going on in the world, as we see the brokenness, as we see the tragedies unfold across the world, but also in our own experience. As Christians, we are people of hope, we have a hope for the future, and our hope is that one day God is going to bring in a new era, a new world, where that brokenness is going to be dealt with, when there'll be no more crying, and there'll be no more pain, and there'll be no more wars, and there'll be no more disappointments, when that hope will be realized in our experience and in the experience of the entire world. That's our hope. Sometimes that's the hope that gets you out of bed in the morning, isn't it? Sometimes that's the hope. It's the only thing that you've got. When you see your family disintegrating, when you see relationships breaking down, or when you look at the bigger picture of the refugees across the world, and you look at war, and you look at suffering, and as you tremble, sometimes at what you see going on, you know that you have a hope. And we know that that hope is true because God has told us. We hold on to it because God has said that to us. Chapter 1 and verse 9 says this. Have a look at it. He has made this known. He has done it. We didn't get it by looking at the tea leaves. We didn't get it by reading the economics textbooks. We didn't get it by looking at the latest political movements that are going on by the latest scientific developments, he has made it known. And what has he made known? Look at how he goes on. That the time is coming, the time of fulfillment, a time in the future when God will unite everything that is in heaven and on earth, which means everything, under Christ. There's a day coming when all that fracture and fragmentation, all that disorder that's around in our world is going to be healed and there will be a new era and a new world and it will all be united under Christ that's our hope as Christians do do you know that hope? do you cling on to that hope? but here's the thing the future is already here. It's already broken in. It's already present. Partially, incompletely. But the future is already here. And here's one of the things that we need to understand as clearly as we understand anything about the Christian life. It is that that future is present in the church. Uniquely in the church. And by that, I don't mean the church in general. So we say things like, the church thinks, or the church says, or we talk about the universal church. No, I'm talking about the local church. The local church is the place where the future is present, where people can have a real experience of the future when they can get a glimpse of what the future will look like in the local church, in us. That's where Ephesians is going. The future is present in the local church. Here. Wow. Do you hear that? You're supposed to say, Wow. Do you know why you're supposed to say, wow? Because it doesn't look like that so often, does it? I mean, look at us. Look at us. And look at so many of our churches across the world, and so many churches are small and struggling. They're not big, mega churches. And we don't make much of an impression, and it's hard work being the church sometimes. So we should say, wow. Wow. Is that really true? Is that possible? What does it mean? I grew up in a Christian family, and so I went to church, and I went every week. Actually, when I was growing up, I went three times. So you're supposed to be impressed. (laughs) Three times on a Sunday. But I grew up with a view of the Christian life that I think went something like this. The most important thing is for an individual to give their life to Jesus Christ. And by the way, I still believe that. We need to respond personally to Jesus Christ. You don't inherit a relationship with God through Jesus. You enter into it. It involves, maybe over a period of time, but it involves a decision that we make to personally respond to Jesus and the fact that he's Lord. But then it was all about my Christian life, my witness as a Christian, whether I told my friends, how well I told my friends. The kind of life that I lived, my individual Christian life, was it consistent with what I said I believed? It was about my Bible reading, my prayer. It was all about the individual. And church, church to me, to be honest, was a petrol station. You know, when you drive a car, if you drive for long enough, you run out of fuel. So what you need to do, well, ideally, before you run out of fuel, you go to a garage and you fill up. The more you drive around, the more often you need to go to the petrol station. And for me, church was like that. You go to church to fill up. And if you're really spiritual, you understand that you need to be in church every week because you drain fuel. And so you go to church every week to be filled up. And by the way, I went to see my friends as well, but I realized that that wasn't the most spiritual thing. The really important thing was to be filled up as a Christian because church was a petrol station. But it's much more than that. God didn't call together individuals to demonstrate the presence of the future. He called the church to do that. And yes, our individual lives need to be consistent with that and to be witnesses to Christ. But it is the church that is the presence of the future. The church is called to be a witness to the future. Because the future has already broken in here and now amongst us. And we demonstrate that. And above all, we demonstrate it to the forces and powers that drive our world. And we say to them, and therefore we tell others as we do that, we say to them, Your power is broken and it's bankrupt and it's destructive and there's a new age coming and your age is over. In chapter 3 and verse 10, there is this extraordinary verse in Ephesians where Paul says that we demonstrate to the principalities and powers the multifaceted wisdom of God. Why? Because the presence of the future is here and their era is over. The church, the local church, is the place of the presence of the future. And that's why the church is far more important than I used to think. And perhaps more important than you think as well. It is the church that is the primary place that demonstrates the future. And therefore, the church is the hope for the world. This is the place amongst people like us, as we gather as the church of Jesus Christ. We are the living demonstration of hope to the world. The church is the hope for your families and your friends and your neighbors. The church is the hope for this community, for Willoughby. The church is the hope for the world. Wow. Do you believe that? You know, there's a difference between believing and believing, isn't there? Knowing and knowing. So if you've been around church for any length of time, if you've been around Christian things for any length of time, you say, well, it's in the Bible. Some of you may be even thinking, well, Graham said it, so it must be true. Some of you are thinking, I just think he might be overblowing things here. It just doesn't seem like that, does it? And as I say, being church is really hard because it's not just that people out there are obstinate. Have you noticed how resistant people are to the gospel? But they're so nice about it. I mean, who needs Jesus when they live in Willoughby? And if you're in Roseville, you're even more blessed. And as for Mossman, well, you're already in heaven, aren't you? So people don't need Jesus. They're resistant. It's hard to be the church. But Paul says in Ephesians, there's something even more difficult about being the church because we're involved in a spiritual battle In chapter 6, he has this description of how we're involved in spiritual warfare. Behind everything, there is spiritual opposition, principalities, powers engaged against us. It's hard being the church, so how can we possibly be this demonstration of the future? How can we be the hope of the world? Would you please have a look at um, the text? Let's go to the text. Here's the first thing that we need to know if we're going to be this people, if we're going to be the church. We need to know that this is God's doing all the way through. God makes the church. God leads the church. God inspires the church. God calls the church into existence. God equips the church. So have a look at what he says in verse 4. It says, we have been chosen. He chose us in him. That is in Christ. God did it. Why are we here? Why are we the church of Jesus Christ here at St. Stephen's? Well, it's because behind everything, God did something. And he did it, you notice, before the foundation of the world. So it's not because you woke up one day and thought... Hey, this is a really smart move. I'll become a Christian and become part of the church. Or because a group of us got together and say, Hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if we formed the church? We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's his doing. It's because of his purpose. And it comes out of his purpose to adopt us as his sons and daughters. Notice what he goes on to say. Before the foundation of the world to adopt us as his sons, sons and daughters in love. Verse 5, he predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. How can we do this? Because God's chosen us. That's why. Number two, because he's redeemed us. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Redemption is a rescue word. Some of you will know the story in the Old Testament of the children of Israel and there they are, they're in Egypt and they're captives and they can't escape and they've been enslaved and they're beginning to, to experience genocide. The Egyptian leadership wants to wipe them out and there's nothing they can do. They're slaves and God works and rescues them. That's redemption. Paul says here that redemption, you'll notice, is the forgiveness of sins, and I think some of us hear that phrase, forgiveness of sins, and think, hey, you know, last week I was just not very nice to my neighbor, that was a sinful thing to do, so I need to be forgiven. Or I cheated on my tax return, or I did this, that, or the other, or it may even be a more serious in our books, sin, and... You know, we have the forgiveness of sins. Well, it includes that, but forgiveness of sins means redemption. That is, it's about being rescued from a way of life from which we can't escape unless God does something. That sets us in opposition against God, that makes us his enemies and puts us under the control of spiritual forces we cannot control. And if you want to look at what that looks like, then you can read ahead to chapter 2. Because chapter 2 says, I want you to remember what you were before Christ redeemed you. Redemption, the forgiveness of sins, is about our life being turned around. And it happened, notice the phrase, through his blood. That is through the death of Jesus. It involved the sacrifice of Jesus to set us free. God did it in Christ. Chosen, redeemed. Thirdly, He's made us, God has made us his inheritance. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen. This is a different kind of chosen. This means that God has made us his inheritance. At one stage in my life, I, I, I hoped that one day I might receive an inheritance. I didn't know who was going to leave me this inheritance because none of my family were rich. But. You know, I would read about people getting inheritances, and I thought, well, maybe one day I'd get an inheritance. Some of you may have been fortunate enough to receive an inheritance. And you say, wow, that's great, isn't it? Some of you may be looking forward to receiving an inheritance. Some of you may be a bit conflicted about it because somebody's going to have to die before you receive your inheritance. But anyway, we won't go there. Do you know God has an inheritance that he's looking forward to? Do you know that? That's a strange thought, isn't it? How could God need anything? How could he ever have any kind of inheritance? What what does that mean? Let me put it like this. God looks forward to a day when he will receive his inheritance. And he's working for that day. He's putting all his energy into the preparation for that day. Do you know who his inheritance is? It's us. Us. We are his inheritance and therefore we are valued And therefore, he is working with his power to bring about the completion of that inheritance. Chosen, redeemed, God's inheritance, and then he's done the Stevie Wonder. You know that song, Signed, Sealed, Delivered? (laughs) Look at what Paul says here. He says in verse 13, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. That is, you responded to the gospel. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. We have a personal affirmation from God. And it's himself. It is his spirit. He seals all. He affirms us and says, That's who you are. Do you see how all that comes together? How can we be the presence of the future? Because God has chosen us to be that. Because He's rescued us to be that. He's redeemed us. Because He's made us His inheritance. And because He's given us the seal of the Spirit. We need to know that if we're going to be the church. We need to know that because it doesn't look like we're very much often, does it? Which brings me to something else. There's a difference between knowing and knowing. There's the knowing of the head, if you like, and there's the knowing of the heart. There's knowing because I just read it in a book. Oh, because somebody told me. And there's the knowing that comes when I realize that's true. And to do that requires a work of the Spirit. Have a look at what Paul does here. You notice, having said all these things, in verse thirteen uh, 15, he goes on to pray for them. He says, for this reason... That is, because of everything I've been saying. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering in you in my prayers. Paul prays, and I want you to know. notice what he prays for. He prays for three things. He prays that they will know God, know hope, and know the power of God. And the knowing he's talking about is not just the knowing in the head. It's the knowing that comes from a work of the Spirit that makes it real to us. He prays, first of all, that they will know God. Verse 17, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the Holy Spirit. So that you may know him better it's possible to know but not to know and that's true of God at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is a personal relationship with God it is to know him but it's possible to know a great deal about God but not actually to know him you can go to theological college you can read the Bible from cover to cover you can read it backwards and forwards you can understand all kinds of things and never know God because you know a lot about God but you don't know him And the knowing that will sustain you and the knowing that's real and the knowing that is truly authentic is a knowing that comes from the work of the Spirit. You know with your head, but you know with your heart as well. And that's what Paul prays for. We don't just peddle ideas about God. If all we do is peddle ideas about God, then we won't survive And the people around us will experience what we say about God as pushing God out there. We're talking about an experienced reality. We don't just know lots about God. We know Him. And Paul prays for that. And Paul prays that they will continue to grow in their knowledge of God. That they will continue to, as he puts it, know Him better. It's not just a work of the Spirit to bring us to know God. It's a work of the Spirit so that we know Him better. That relationship is deepened. So he prays that they may know God. Secondly, he prays that they might know the hope. I pray that the eyes of your heart, verse uh, 18, may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He's called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in in His holy people. I said at the beginning that as Christians we have a hope for the world and for ourselves, and we do, don't we? But aren't there times when you lose hope? You carry on going through the motions of what it means to be a Christian, perhaps. You keep coming to church, you keep reading your Bible, maybe. And up here, you keep saying it's true. But in reality, you've lost hope. Because your life is just a mess, perhaps. Because you're experiencing things that have so shaken you. Because you've seen things happen in your family or your friends. Or maybe you just lose hope because you look around the world and you ask yourself the question, it's 2,000 years since Jesus died, so where is it all? What's changed? Paul prays that they might know the hope of their inheritance. That they might know in a heart-knowledge way who they are and all that God has for us in the future that he is unfolding. When one day the fact that we are his inheritance will be revealed to the entire universe. And God, if you like, will say, have you seen these people? Aren't they amazing? That's because of what Jesus has done for them. I want the whole universe to have a look at them. That's us. Paul prays that they might know the hope. They might know God, know the hope, and finally know the power. So he prays, verse 19, about his incomparably great power for us. God is powerful. That's the kind of thing that a child would say, isn't it? If you ask them what's God like, they'd say, well, he's strong, powerful, mighty. They might even sing a song. (laughs) My God is mighty. And do the actions. If we believe in God, chances are we believe God is powerful. So to say God is powerful doesn't mean anything, does it? Where it becomes a problem is whether God is powerful for you. For us, that's the issue, isn't it? When you don't see God's power at work in your life, when you experience things that shake you and shake the foundation of your life, and you cry out, God, where are you? God, what do we mean to you? What's this life of mine about? And remember, this is addressed to the church because the church is the primary place that witnesses to the presence of the future. So let's not just get too carried away with the individual. When we look at us as a church, it requires a work of the Spirit of God to know that God's power is at work. Notice verse 19, he's incomparably great power for us. God is working for us. God is working for St. Stephen's. And do you know what the kind of power is that he's working? Well, it's incomparable. But he goes on to tell us, just in case we've missed the point, it's resurrection power. It's the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead that God is working for us. Have a look at it. I didn't make this up. Verse 19, that power is the same as the mighty strength. Verse 20, he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. I That's pretty impressive, isn't it? God raised Jesus from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He's been raised above every power and every authority. That's quite impressive power. God is working for us. It needs a work of the Spirit to know that because it doesn't look like that a lot of the time. So he prays then that they might know God. Through a work of the Spirit. Know the hope through a work of the Spirit. And know the power. It is the most amazing privilege and calling to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. There is nothing like the church. Nothing. Is it any wonder that Paul begins in verse 3 the way that he does? He has a charismatic moment, doesn't he? (laughs) Or an Anglican moment, depending on how you're feeling. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because he chose us, because he redeemed us because he has made us his inheritance, because he sealed us with the spirit. He hasn't left anything out, every spiritual blessing in Christ. The church is the presence of the future. And it is the place of the presence of Jesus. So notice where he ends up at the end of 22 and into 23. He says, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, Who fills everything in every way? We are the presence of Jesus. It needs a work of the Spirit to see that because it doesn't look like it so often. Our privilege and our calling is to be what God has called us to be. We need to be the church. The world needs us to be the church because we're the hope of the world. And in being the church, becoming more and more what God has called us to be, we bring praise to the Father who loved us and was a work before we were even born, to the Son who died for us, and to the Spirit who lives with us and seals us. Church needs to be The church. For the glory of God. And for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Father we. Sometimes. Father we have to say that we read things in your word. And somehow it sounds. So much more than we can get our heads around. Sometimes we have to pinch ourselves and say, Is that really true? But Father, thank you that you're at work pinching us by your Holy Spirit, saying, This is true. This is real. Father, please would you do that in each of us and us together as a community of God's people, as the church here at St. Stephen's? Would you do that Holy Spirit pinching that says, This is true. This is real. May we experience it. May we know it, not just in our heads, but in our hearts as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.